Good morning once again. Now, go ahead and open your Bibles up, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. I'll turn there with you. And two weeks ago, if you were here, you heard Robert Green give us a very quick overview of Acts chapter 3 and 4 all at the same time. And we got to see that really it was one story, wasn't it? It was one story. Even You just keep reading right through that big number 4. And you'll see that this is all kind of one story that takes place over two different days. And a great miracle happened. Uh, Robert did that two weeks ago. This week, I'm going to, after doing chapter 3 last week, I'm going to take a look this week at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. And I'm entitling today's message, Threatened But Not Silenced. This is the state of the church at all times. No matter where we are, the church is threatened but not silenced. And so let's read Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22 together, and then I'll tell you the rest of what we can expect this morning. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it might not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you Rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Father, again, please help us to get out of the Bible what you have put into it and help us, help us to be changed as a result. Let this change our lives as we hear your very words being explained and applied to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If Acts chapter 3 tells us how people responded to the miracle of the lame man being raised, Acts chapter 4 tells us about how people responded to the message that followed that miracle. As, as we mentioned last week, Peter says to the crowd that had gathered, the, the, real, the real focus here should not be so much on, on the miracle itself, but on what the miracle proves. 
It wasn't so much the fact that there was a formerly lame man who could no longer be found where his friends had laid him, but rather that there was a formerly dead man, Jesus, who could no longer be found where his friends had laid him in the tomb. And that was what Peter was calling his audience to reckon with and to understand. That this miracle, like every other miracle, seeks to point us to Jesus Christ. It's not merely a wonder, but a sign. And as we go through today's passage one verse at a time, all I want to do is is let the Bible answer three questions for us. Number one, based on what we see here of people's response to Peter's message, how can we expect people to respond to our message about Jesus today? Number two, why is our message about Jesus so offensive to so many people? And finally, number three, how should we respond today if and when we too are commanded by others to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? If and when. It will happen. Where you, if it hasn't happened yet, just wait. It will happen. You will be commanded by other people. Right here, you don't even have to leave this country or this city. You will be commanded by other people to stop preaching the gospel in certain places and to certain people. And how should we respond? Well, we we want the Word of God to help us with this this morning. So question number one, how can we expect people to respond to our message about Jesus today? Let's look at the first three verses and let's see how people responded to Peter. We see here that as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And their annoyance went all the way to this point. They arrested them in verse 3 and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And it was, it was illegal to hold a trial during the evening. So the trial of Jesus, you understand, was an illegality. It was illegal for them to do that. They would have to wait for the next day. And so that's what they did. They put them into custody, said, let's try them the next day. Um, but you'll notice here that one of the first things you and I can expect, if we are faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to our world, is resistance. The first thing we can expect is resistance. And you'll notice here that 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 resistance, it it won't always look like this. Sometimes it will be pretty mild on the surface. It might just be somebody who politely says, you know, I I really don't want to hear much about that. I don't want to talk about religion. We'll, We'll probably get that resistance here more than anything else. But even here in this country where we're not as likely to be imprisoned or tortured or killed for speaking about Jesus, which does, by the way, happen in many places in the world. Been to one of them, you've probably been to some of them, it happens all the time. This past July, some of you know that we lost some dear brothers who were serving our Lord in in Pakistan, Um, very closely connected to our church as a matter of fact. And just speaking about Jesus, brought up on false charges, and as they were leaving the courtroom, they were gunned down by, by radical Islamic fundamentalists. Uh, this is a reality of, of life for Christians all across the world. Um, so, and these were the very same people, by the way, that you and I had come together to support because of something else that happened there. And so it's not just, this is not just happening to other people we don't know. This is a part of our life as Redemption Hill Church and as Christians. Whether we're aware of it at all times or not, this is happening. Um, But we can expect this kind of resistance, whatever form it takes. Resistance is is just part of speaking up about Jesus. Now, what you want to notice here is the kind of resistance that happens. And it actually makes more sense if you know something about these people we see in verse 1. And I'm not going to spend too much time on it. But uh, let me just say something about the Sadducees, one of the people mentioned here. But there's actually, if you have the scripture in Acts chapter 23, verse 8, you can see why the Sadducees would resist what was happening here. In Acts chapter 23, verse 8, we see something here about the Sadducees as we compare them to the Pharisees. The Sadducees actually say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. So if you're a Sadducee and if if your power over people and if your place among the people is dependent upon what you're teaching them and them believing it and you having credibility with them, then this is a very dangerous message that there are people who apparently are displaying a kind of power that, can be, that cannot be denied and they're saying that actually everything the Sadducees are teaching you is incorrect. 
The, the Sadducees stood to lose a lot of power over people, a lot of money, a lot of political clout, a lot of things they stood to lose here. And so they immediately moved to suppress this message. And listen, the same is true for us today. You, you keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there is a profound, even economic impact it will make on your world. Strip clubs, clothes, the pornography industry goes away. I mean, that's a 50, over 50 plus billion dollar industry alone just in this country. You keep eating into that with the gospel and people's pockets are being affected and you're going to get some, some very serious resistance. We, we go to Delmont every couple of weeks and even more than that at times. And Listen, we're starting to work with kids in middle school now just up the street in Delmont where, where for the ladies, their bodies are supposed to be available to certain people. For the guys, they're supposed to be available as, as uh, servants and employees on the corner. And we keep preaching this gospel to people that's starting to cut into people's pockets and I don't know how much longer my wife and I will be here. But why, we, we keep doing it. Why? Because Jesus deserves that. That's what we're here for. And if, listen, if, if we're resisted to the point of losing our lives, then so be it. But let us stand and preach the gospel. I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's, let's keep going. We can expect resistance, but we can expect something more than that as well. Look at verse 4. Second response we can expect to our preaching today is repentance. In verse 4... It says that many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, it says that many believed, and that is connected to repentance, because what's going on here in chapter 4, verse 4, is really a statement. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 19, you'll see that Peter commanded the crowd, repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. And what verse 4 is saying here in chapter 4 is that this actually happened. Some of the people who heard Peter's message about Jesus repented. They turned from sin in their hearts to God. They trusted that what Jesus did was enough for them. And God was faithful to blot out their sins. And they were added to the church. You'll notice that this sort of repentance leads to church growth. Whereas we see on on the day of Pentecost that 3,000 souls were saved. Here we see now that as the Lord continued to add day by day to those who were being saved in Acts 2.47. Up to this point now, we see that after Peter is finished preaching here and repentance takes place and faith in Christ, the number of men comes to about 5,000, which means, and this is a word that is specific. If you read the Greek here, the word aner here is specific for men. It's, it's not the generic for mankind, which includes women as well. So this is the number of men totaling 5,000. So the real number of the church could be anywhere between 10 and 15,000 at this point. Probably two months or so out from Jesus living, dying, rising, and going back to heaven. I mean, just, this is just weeks from these events. Real church growth. Not simply transfer from one church to another, but real growth. Like people who are not Christians becoming Christians. Because of the preaching of the gospel and what God does in their hearts. And so, and that we can, listen, if we keep preaching the gospel, we can expect church growth here. Not just for Redemption Hill, but across this city and beyond. We can expect church growth. Souls coming to faith in Christ. But only if we continue to preach the gospel. There are lots of, there are lots of models or, or examples of church growth that you can achieve with nothing but pragmatic methods. But that is not church growth. You see the difference? That's not church growth. The number of Jesus' church members hasn't, hasn't changed at all until somebody gets saved. And so that's what we aim for here. We preach the gospel that people might be saved. So you can see this. We can expect resistance. We can expect repentance. We can expect both of those things today if we're faithful to preach the gospel to other people, just as we see here in Acts chapter 4. Second question, Why? Why is our message about Jesus so offensive to so many people? Let's pick the story up in verse 5, and we'll see why as we go through verse 12. It says here, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and with Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And right at this point, you, remember Peter here. This is the same man who just weeks earlier couldn't own up to his relationship 
with Jesus Christ in front of some people who were just outside warming themselves by a fire, perhaps. Men and women of little account who, who really could not do very much to him. And Peter was so scared that he had to deny the Lord three times. And here we'll see a very different Peter. And it begs the question, what, what happened? I would submit to you that what happened to Peter is, is that that thing that Christians keep talking about today, those things about Jesus, about him rising from the dead, literally, and being seen by people, I would submit to you that what, what Peter is about to do makes perfect sense if he saw Jesus after Jesus died. If he saw Jesus alive after having died, what he's about to say, it needs no further explanation. It's the rest of the world that denies the resurrection of Christ that has a lot of explaining to do. You can't explain Peter. Scared out of his mind in front of a mere servant girl or servant boy asking him a question about Jesus, but now standing before those who could take his very life and saying, Jesus is back. Right here at this point, Peter's about to give his response, and you know the words that Jesus spoke in Mark chapter 13, verse 11, were in his mind. Um, And if you look at Mark chapter 13, verse 11, and I think we have a slide there for that, Jesus said, and when when they bring you to trial, no if but when, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. And you and I can have the same confidence when we're called upon to speak. The Holy Spirit will speak through us. And it's exactly what we see happen in this story for Peter. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them... Now, I don't, I, this is why I don't buy completely into the idea that some people put out there that if you're filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking under the power and influence of the Spirit, it's always going to sound like what other people consider to be nice. I don't buy into that because I read my Bible. Right? Now watch. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and people of the el- rulers and elders of the people, or rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands healed. This is as bold and as confrontational as you can get. And it is the the direct work of being influenced by the Holy Spirit. There's nothing nice about what Peter says here. And yet there is nothing mistakable about the fact that when we read the Bible, we are informed that this is the Holy Spirit's doing. This is the Holy Spirit's message through a vessel named Peter. The Holy Spirit's primary concern is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And he is often very direct in his message as he attempts to do so. Don't ever fall into the trap of believing that if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it will always sound flowery. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says these things. Now notice the whom you crucified in verse 10. Do you see that there in your Bible? He could have left that part out, could he not? Let it be known to you that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands healed. But no, Peter is very, very deliberate and pointed here. Whom you crucified. You. The first reason our message about Jesus today is going to be so offensive to so many people is because our our message about Jesus today is still consistent with the message we see Peter giving people here in Acts chapter 4. We preach a gospel in this church, and hopefully outside of our gatherings, we preach a gospel to others that does what the Holy Spirit does here, and that is that highlights their guilt. (laughs) I know this is not, you guys don't want to hear this. It's all right, I know that. 
Would you, would you be willing, for, forget your personality for just a moment, because my personality naturally lends itself to this, and I understand we're different there. But would you agree at least for the moment that the Holy Spirit of God pointed out their guilt in this, in this passage? He highlighted it and put it on the front page. See, so you can never leave here with the impression or with the false notion that the Holy Spirit doesn't do that kind of thing. He does. He did. He does it all the time. Because he knows it's one of the most effective ways to get people to the point of godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, which leads to life. And it's not just a technique. It's simply highlighting reality. You killed Jesus. The Holy Spirit is drawing people to Christ here into the mercy of God that they can only claim if they first claim their share in the guilt of the cross. Did you know that you can't claim your share in the gift of the cross until you claim your share in its guilt? And the Holy Spirit gives them the opportunity to do that here. And guess what, Christians? So should we. You don't don't need to be scared about doing this. Help people out. Let them know that they are in fact guilty of killing Jesus. This is no time to try to win popularity contests. Real people are dying and going to hell every single day. Popularity contests, save that for for high school or something else. This This is no time for that. All right, so let me get back to what I see here in my notes. We see the Holy Spirit highlighting guilt here. People don't like to feel guilty, and so we're going to offend many people if we're faithful to proclaim the gospel as we see it proclaimed in the passage here of Scripture. But we have to do that because Jesus, what Jesus deserves and what he wants and what he expects has to always take number one. That has to be the number one thing on our agenda. Here's another reason. Another reason people are going to be offended very offended by our message of Jesus today is because of what we see in verse 12. For us here at Redemption Hill, these are not simply outdated ideas, uh, archaic notions held by religious fundamentalists who just haven't quite kept up with the times. These are things we hold to be eternally true, taught clearly by the Scripture. Verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And people must be saved. And if people are going to be saved, the Bible is very clear. There is one name and one name only by which they may be saved. And that name was Jesus at the time of Peter, and it's still Jesus today. There is no other name under heaven. I don't care where you go. Everywhere on this earth is under heaven and there is no name in that part of the world by which men can be saved. This is not a a fact or an accident of your birth and where you grew up and what the people believe there. I don't care where they grew up and what they believe. Jesus is the only name by which they can be saved. And this is the message of the Bible. Now I care about those people. And I care about the fact that they believe lies and those lies will carry them to the place where their souls are destroyed and they they have to suffer the eternal wrath of God that Christ willingly took for sinners on the cross. I care about those people and that's why we got to sometimes, listen, sometimes we got to get on planes and we got to go. Sometimes we just got to go next door. We've got to go. Because people aren't just going to always just walk up to us and say, oh, hey, you're a Christian, right? Can, tell me about Jesus. Is that how it works for you? Hey, please tell, and, and do, by all means, include that part about, about my guilt and, and, uh, and what I deserve from God's hand. Would you, would you please tell me about Jesus? No, it's going to, most of the time, it's going to require us going. Isn't, isn't that what we see in Jesus, him coming here, going to the lost and reaching people with the gospel? But that's what it's going to take. And the last time I checked in the Bible, no Christian is left out of this plan of God. This is not just something for a select few that we call missionaries. This is, this is the average normal life for a Christian. 
Now, getting up and going on plane, listen, I hope, yeah, I hope, I'll, I'll be, let me, let me just come right out and say it. I hope everybody who's a member of this church or even a casual attender will at some point have the privilege of getting on a plane and going somewhere uh, where Christ is hardly or not at all named and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ there. Oh, man, part of me would shrivel up if I ever thought that I could speed up. You remember when Robert asked us, what will we be known for over the next 30 years? The period of time that, it, that, that passes during the book of during the book of Acts, I mean, it, it would, it would, my soul would shrivel up if I, if I really thought, here's Redemption Hill in 30 years, and all I saw was a church that kept both of its eyes, both of its hands, and both of its feet in the city of Richmond. I would shrivel. Uh, that, would, that would break my heart. Because it, here's, the, here's the fact of the matter. There are, there are unreached people groups in the world. There are, there are whole groups of people that have less than 2% of the population believing in Christ. And, and worse than that, there are some groups of people that as far as we can tell are completely unengaged with the gospel. No, as far as we can tell, maybe even historically, no presence of a Christian, no preaching the gospel for the salvation of the lost there. Never heard of Christ. And Christ is still the only name by which they can be saved. I, I, I believe There are plenty of churches in the world. If God starts another one in Richmond, Virginia in the year 2008, I am pretty sure that he's still committed to reaching every people on the face of the planet with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I cannot help but believe that the emergence of Redemption Hill Church in 2008 is meant to make a dent in that slice of the world which remains unreached. And that means that if you're here, you're a part of that. That's really what, what's going on in the whole book of Acts, by the way. Don't miss that as we study it chapter by chapter. This is about people taking the gospel to the ends of the earth as they understood it at that time. Advancing, as we say, Matt Bristol, advancing the clock, so to speak, when Christ would return. All right, so, so I forget exactly where I am here, but you can see that's what happens. I just get to preaching and I lose myself in my notes. But you can, you can see here in chapter 4, that there is a very exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Now, is this something Peter made up or something we made up? John chapter 3. Or John chapter 14, rather, verse 6. Let's see, let's see if this is something Peter just decided to make up on his own. Now, for those of you who are familiar with your Bibles, who is speaking here? Jesus. And here's what Jesus says in the Bible. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, that is God, except through me. So question, based on what Jesus teaches the world, how many people can come to God through somebody other than Jesus? Zero. What should we say to people who insist that it is possible for some people to come to God through some other person? If you want to be a Christian about it, you're left with no choice. You have to look at people and say, you know, all right, you might not want to say this, but at the very least, you have to be willing to look at people and say, Jesus says you can't make it any other way. Now, I know there are a lot of professing Christians today who will give you a very different answer, but I would strongly encourage you to listen to Jesus because I I think that he is better informed when it comes to Christianity than these professing Christians around you. You would do well to listen to Jesus when, when other Christians disagree with him. Maybe that's the only thing the Bible has to say about this. Maybe there, there's nothing else in John chapter 3. that. Now, I'm going to show you the most famous verse in the Bible. And the two verses which follow it, which are not as famous. John chapter 3, verse 16, you can quote it. The drunk man at the football stadium can quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
Sounds great so far. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Which is important because, we listen, we don't come speaking about Jesus to condemn people. We come speaking about Jesus exclusively so that they might be saved. Verse 18, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Did I condemn them by speaking to them about Jesus? Or were they condemned already? Well, I don't know what you believe, but Jesus believes they were condemned already. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. If there is anyone, you find me somebody who has not yet believed in the name of the only Son of God, and according to Jesus, you have just found somebody who is condemned already. And their only hope is to believe in the name of the one and only Son of God. That's what Jesus teaches. And you know what this means? This This is why our message is going to be offensive. Because here we're committed to holding these truths up for the world, for ourselves and for the rest of the world. we, We believe in these very exclusive claims of the Bible. And we live in a pluralistic society where people insist that there there must be multiple accepted paths to God. How arrogant and narrow minded it is to say there's only one way and that Jesus is it. But you know what I found? And this this might help you. You know what I found? And I I do this, I, I, I say this to people. I said, look, don't don't be so offended at my exclusivity. Because number one, it's not mine, it came from Jesus. Your problem really is with Jesus and not with me. And number two, you're actually just as exclusive. And of course, this immediately puts up their defenses. Well, what do you mean? I'm I'm very open-minded. No, not at all. You also believe there's only one way to heaven and one way to God. And they say, well, no, well, I think you can be a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a, a Hindu or, or a Baptist or, you know. That's my, my team, too, so I can, I can, I, I, I play on lots of teams, so I can do that. But here's, here's what they say, I believe all these paths to God. I said, no, you don't. Listen carefully to your statement. You believe that someone can be a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu, or a Buddhist, or an atheist, or agnostic, and still go to God and go to heaven as long as they are a good person. There's your one way. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking that you're more open-minded. You have one path that people can travel on to get to God. They have to be a good person. Did you know that all these people are just as exclusive as you are? It's very true. And I'll watch that person's countenance change. And they don't want to admit what just happened. But you know what? It got in there. It got in there. The Holy Spirit took it in. And the thing that you thought made you so much better than me was your open-mindedness. And now you know that you're not open-minded at all. And where does that leave you? Well, it leaves you on, even, on an even playing field with the Christian. You're just as sinful as the Christian, and you need Jesus too. See, everybody, everybody's exclusive about this thing. Don't, don't ever believe people have more than one path that they accept. And, I say, and I'll look at them and I'll say, look, now what you've just proven is that you also are making exclusive claims about how people must get to God and they have to be a good person. So now you believe that there are multiple names by which people can get to God. You believe that you can get to God in the name of Raymond as long as he's a good person or in the name of Heather as long as she's a good person or the name of Jay as long as he's a good person and the name of, you just pick a name. But the Bible stands against this pluralistic way of thinking. There is, look at your Bible. If you don't have one, look down and fake it. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. 
There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's still true today. And Redemption Hill never forget it and never hide it from people. It's their only chance to be saved. Let's, let's move on. We can see that when we preach, how will people respond? Well, with, with resistance on the one hand, but repentance that leads to life and church growth on the other. Why is our message going to be so offensive to so many people? Because it's going to remind them of their guilt and highlight it. And it's also, it's also going to continue to make an exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way to God. And finally, last question that we want to ask and answer is, how should we respond if and when we too are commanded by others not to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? The short answer is that we, we should respond the way that Peter and John did here in Acts chapter 4. And let's look at how the Bible describes that response. In verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the, what's that word? The boldness. The boldness of Peter and John. And perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. We need to respond. I have to qualify this in a moment and explain it. But we need to respond with boldness. Boldness. Let me tune my personality down for just a moment. This does not necessarily have anything to do with volume. This doesn't mean you have to be loud. It's just bold. It it doesn't even have to be as public of a setting as what we see here in Acts chapter 4. In in fact, I think some of the moments, most of the moments perhaps that you and I We'll, we'll, we'll need boldness for it, are going to be one-to-one kind of moments. Or, or like me, maybe, maybe you're in a group of Christians, and, and we've just gotten so, quote-unquote, grace-driven that, that holiness has gone right out the window. And there you are, as the Christian in the room, with the conviction that this needs to change. And you just, like me often, you just, you just don't find the boldness to say it. Because you don't want to be labeled as self-righteous. God forbid. God forbid you remind Christians of the need for holiness. God forbid. What a terrible thing. But I, I, I will often fail there in, the, in that regard with boldness. For me, it's actually easier uh, in the presence of unbelievers to speak boldly about Jesus Christ. In most settings that I find myself in anyway. It's, it's that other one that's kind of harder for me. And I don't know what's, what's the more difficult for you. Uh, but, but we're all called. We're all called to boldness. Where the honor of Christ is at stake. And so here we see the boldness of Peter and John. And I want to I let the Bible here define for us what this boldness really looks like. And you can see it in verses 18 through 20. It's not, it's not a matter of volume or how public of a setting it is. Verse 18 to 20 says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Here's boldness. Here's boldness. No matter what anybody else says is our obligation. Here's boldness. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Boldness, the boldness to which we're called here, is the unshakable resolve to speak up. When the opportunity arises to speak up about what we have seen and heard concerning Jesus Christ. Boldness, it it can be done very softly. And be just as bold. Boldness is the resolve to listen to God rather than other people precisely at the point when it might cost you everything to do so. Even your very own life. Your job, your friends, your life. Boldness. It's it's when you're married to an unbeliever. And you hear, don't speak to our kids anymore in this name. 
Boldness. Faith in the protection of God. Boldness. Don't speak to these children in this school any longer in this name. Boldness. Boldness. With wisdom. Prayerful wisdom. Now, I don't promise you that you'll be able to keep your job. But I invite you to step into the persecution that belongs to Jesus' people with the trust that as you honor Christ, He will honor you. And let the rest of us deal with the problem that we have because of your faithfulness. Let us deal with that together as a church. You say, Pastor, that's easy for you to say. You're, you're, you're a pastor. You're right. I have a platform from which to speak, and I can say these things boldly. But you, you know what? We're in a building here today. Listen, we don't, we don't control things as much as you would think. I mean, we, this is not our building. For, for what I'm saying here today, we could be kicked out. And yet we're saying it anyway. Why? Because this is what Jesus has commanded us to say to the world. And he is our God and no one else. Boldness is the resolve to listen to God rather than other people, precisely at the point when it might cost you everything to do so. I love what Martin Luther said about this once. He said, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition, listen to me, it's not going to be up on the slide. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the Word of God, except precisely that little point in God's Word, where the world and the devil are at that very moment attacking. That precise point of truth in God's word, that everybody in the world and the the, the devil himself are attacking. If If I shrink back there, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. And to be steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. We must be bold at the point where we can lose everything. And I, I, listen, I call myself and all of you to that kind of boldness. There's a man, folks, who died upon the cross for our sins. And this is his, this is his word to us, that we be bold as his witnesses. I remember a time... <clears throat> Let me answer this first. Where, where, does that, where does that boldness come from? Where, where will that kind of boldness come from? Are you just going to kind of hang around somebody with a personality like mine and say, well, he looks bold? Maybe, maybe if he just lays hands on me or something. I don't know what your, your church traditions are like, but, but maybe if I just get close enough to someone who looks bold. Now look, verse 13. Look at verse 13. This gives you the key. Where does boldness come from? When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, this is not going to come from some theological education in some formal school. That won't give you boldness. This is not going to come from your college degree which makes you feel intellectually on par with or above others. That's not where boldness comes from. They perceived that these were uneducated common men and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This kind of boldness only comes when we have been with Jesus. And you can come to a lot of church meetings like this and listen to a lot of pastors and not have been with Jesus in this way. You can be a pastor. I, listen, I know the feeling when I feel like I, I have not been with Jesus for a while. And you can feel your boldness just disappearing. Keeping your eyes on Jesus. Seeing the man who lived, died, and rose again. That's what did it for Peter. He really saw Jesus alive. And that man who was so nervous and so scared outside of the meeting when Jesus was on trial, was all of a sudden, under the heat himself, on trial, bold in the presence of those who could take his very life. And he said, take it. 
I already know how this ends up. But I will not stop speaking about Jesus. You take my, you take my life, but not my mouth. Not my mouth. I'm a Christian, and I cannot help it. That is the boldness to which we're called. I remember a time, and I'll leave you with this illustration. I remember a time where this moment kind of came for me, and I was a campus minister at the University of Richmond at the time. This was in 2006. And, Christy, you, you had a meeting with the chaplain recently, so you'll appreciate this. I was actually called into the chaplain's office because of a conversation I had with a young man named Joel, who I didn't know at the time, but it turned out that he was a, a Jewish student. I was just having a, a conversation with him, and, and I had had a conversation with him prior to this, and he showed some interest in, in what I was saying about Jesus, and, and I was sitting down in the pier one day, or I don't know, what do they call it now, Tyler Haynes Grill? It was the pier when I was there, and that dog, Teal, would come through. You know what I'm talking about, Laura. Teal would come through while I was eating my lunch. Well, I was sitting there eating my lunch by myself there, and Joel came up and sat down with me and said, can I join you? I said, of course. An unbeliever wants to join me for lunch. Can I join you? Absolutely. Absolutely. What are we going to talk about? Jesus. Great. So we started talking, uh, and it, the, the conversation got to the point where he asked me, so are you, are you saying that all Jews and Muslims and Buddhists deserve to go to hell? And, and I said, Yes. Absolutely. And he was very much disturbed by this. So disturbed, and I didn't know this, but so disturbed that he ended up going to the, to the leader of the, the Jewish student community on campus there at the time who went to the chaplain of the university. And, and not too long after that, I was emailed by the chaplain. And she said, I'd like for you to come in to have a meeting with me and the leader of this Jewish organization to discuss what I, I call appropriate witnessing. And so I said, well, here it is, you know. I sent out my prayer emails to, to the ministry I represented at the time, to a bunch of my friends, and God's people began praying. And so I went into that room with the promise of Jesus on my mind. Don't worry about what you'll say. The Holy Spirit will speak through you at that time. And so I went in there, and, and this was the issue that was brought up. Uh, the very nice lady who was, who was overseeing the Jewish student community at that time, probably still is, um, looked and said, here's the report that I got, Raymond. It, the student said that you told him that all, all Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus, that they all deserve to go to hell and that they will in fact go to hell if they never repent, and, uh, never repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And she could hardly believe that I would actually say something like this. And so she looked over at me and so did the chaplain and she said, did you, did you actually say that to him? And, and I said, well, well, that was the question that he asked me. And my answer to him was, was yes, absolutely. It's about as bold as you get. Right in front of the chaplain, right in front of the, that, that other organization. Yeah, that's exactly what I said to him. I said, now, did he, did he tell you what else I said? No, this is all he said. Well, let me, let me finish it for you. I told him that his list was too short. I said, you need to put Christians on your list and put me at the front. Make sure you put yourself there too because you asked me about what people deserve. And I am simply telling you what Jesus told the world. That is exactly what you and I deserve. And whether you like it or not, it's not going to change. What needs to change is not the truth, but you. And this is what I told that student. It's what I told the chaplain. It's what I told the leader of this other organization. And I made no apologies for it, and I never will. I never will. There's a man who died for my sins and who gave me life. And this is what he wants me to tell people. And he doesn't want me to flinch because someone doesn't like it. And this, this message can be spoken with all boldness and yet with very much humility and sensitivity to who it is you're speaking to. It is possible to retain the truth with deep conviction, but yet reveal it with deep compassion. It is possible. 
And it is what we are called to. How did it end up? The chaplain looks at the, the other lady and says, how do you feel based on what he said? Are you okay with the fact that as, a, as an institution, we actually make room for people like Raymond? And much to her credit, she made room for people like me. And the, the, the young lady said, you know, of all the religious fundamentalists I've met, or of all the Christian fundamentalists I've ever met, and I, just, you know, I decided to wear that label for, for a couple of minutes, no problem. Of all the fundamentalists that I've met, I actually, I'm, I'm least bothered by him than anyone else. I trust him. She said, I know that he will tell me to my face exactly what he believes and exactly what he's done. And they, they very simply asked me before I left, they said, well, would you agree to do this, Raymond? Would you agree that if you if, at least ask if someone is of another faith, say a Muslim or a Jew or whatever, and if, if you discover that this person is of another religion, that at that point the, the conversation would end and you wouldn't speak to them about Jesus from that point. And I said, I, I can't do that. I said, quite, quite honestly, sorry, I can't do that. I will not harass anybody, but if anyone shows an interest in hearing the only message about the only man who is able to deliver their soul from an eternal hell, I am going to pursue a conversation with that person. Um, and you're more than welcome to be there when I do it. For we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. Expect resistance, but expect repentance as well. Expect to offend people because you're going to highlight their guilt through the gospel and you're going to speak an exclusive message about Jesus Christ that this pluralistic world cannot stand. They believe they only hate your religion, but they really hate the name of Jesus without even knowing it. And be bold and understand that this boldness will only come as we have been with Jesus. And when you come to this place in your heart, you can stand with men like Peter and John and you can speak up. And in the words of Fannie Mae Crosby, the songwriter, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin and the grave, weep over the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus who is mighty to save. For though they are slighting him, still he is waiting waiting the penitent child to receive. So plead with them earnestly. Plead with them gently. He will forgive if they only believe. So rescue the perishing. Duty demands it. The boldness you need, the Lord will provide. Back to the narrow way. Patiently win them. Tell the poor wanderer the Savior has died. Let's pray.